some evangelizing through helping the poor, some evangelizing through street meetings, some evangelizing through um, preaching in the streets, some with their service. There's all different types of ideas. And now we are talking about the possibility of adding three different missionaries uh, to our roster of missionaries and some ideas about, well, let's examine, make sure, and, and sometimes we make choices based upon, you know, do what's, how does their slide presentation roll? Was it real smooth? And things like that where the criteria that we should be looking at is basically character number one, and then also on what Paul talks about, some of the, uh, some of, I think, some of the characteristics of and the approach to missions as well as the approach to the teaching and the preaching that they do. And so I'm thinking that what I wanted to do is wrap up and just wind our missions conference with helping to give a little bit of direction in when we're talking about next week as far as those different missionaries, should we, shouldn't we, when we talk about missions as a whole. Okay, I, this year more than any other year, I was given a whole slew of different names and different people with different ideas and some were, were good recommendations. Some of them do not fit philosophy of missions as we'll talk about in a minute, our philosophy of missions. Um, and some churches have a wide variety of different views. My son is now pastoring in a church that uh, he is filling in because uh, of what happened in their church in the last few months. And he said in their, this church that's just 100 people, they have 70-some different missionaries that they support. And some of them, the majority of them, are not even on the field anymore. And so they've got this whole dilemma, and most of them were at some time related to somebody in the church, and that was the criteria. And so we have these questions that we want to just answer briefly this evening, and the passage that I think is really an appropriate one central passage to give us a little bit of an idea comes out of 1 Corinthians 16. In 1 Corinthians 16, it gives several different ideas. As Paul is wrapping up, and you know the passage, he's written to the, to the Corinthians, he's winding down the letter, and these people he has a good rapport with. He helped found the church uh, years before. He spent 18 months with these people. Now he's writing them again and he's ministering in other fields and they've had communication over the last few years that he's been ministering with them. And now as he winds down in 1 Corinthians 16, he is going to give a lot of personal insights of how he thinks, how he acts, how he operates as a missionary, as the apostle. Paul. He's going to give us some ideas about not only what he does, but what his message is, which he's already elaborated at detail, but he's going to wind it up in a couple verses. And then we're going to see something about Paul that I think is so pivotal and so important for us in relationship to missionaries. So we're going to go through the chapter and just kind of do it in a quick fashion. But what I want you to see is this. Paul is a model missionary. We know that. He's the example. He's the pioneer missionary. As a model missionary, he had the right approach. Follow along as we just go real quickly through the first 12 verses and just highlight some thoughts as we walk through what he's saying. And it's going to be interesting to just make the principles and to point out this is what missions is about. Look at verse 1 where he starts in 1 Corinthians. And excuse me, my Bible flipped where it shouldn't have. It says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order in the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. Now you're thinking, yeah, that's a missionary, somebody who's asking for money. That is not the principle. Go a little bit further. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. When I gather besides just him saying, hey, listen, what we're going to do is we're going to take up an offering, help another church. What is important is something that's underlying this. 
Paul, when he approached missions, he had this concept. He was local church-centered. He is talking about churches helping churches. He is talking about church planting. He is writing to a church. His whole focus wasn't on, okay, let's make a missions and we'll, we'll teach only about farming or we'll only do hospital care or we'll only do orphan care. All those things are good and they can be tools. But the focus of missions has got to be first and foremost not those secondary, but first and foremost, let's get people saved, baptized, and into a local church. Let's establish local church. It's all about churches that will continue on and propagate the message to be a representative body of Christ in their community. And Paul was like that. That's what he's concerned about in verses 1 and 2. That whole idea of church. In fact, let's take a little bit further. We also see that when he's asking for a collection for the churches of Galatia, he is saying, okay, you in Corinth, we want, we want to give assistance to even struggling churches. That we as the big brother of a church can help out a little brother of a church that is battling. And Paul had that in mind. He had in mind not only to establish churches, but there was times that he was going to have to go in and help to support, help to be able to fortify, help to be able to regird and rebuild some of those churches. When, uh, when we bought our home, there was something hidden that we didn't see in our house. There was something that never got caught by the inspector. But when we renovated our basement, brought it up to speed, and took the paneling that was there since 1970 and pulled it away, what we found was this crack running through the whole foundation in the basement to the point that the wall was coming in at a pretty cl good clip. And so then right away we had to all of a sudden stop what we were planning on doing. And renovations always cost you more than what you plan, Correct. You find something that you weren't planning on. Well, we weren't planning on that basement wall starting to bow in a little bit. So we had to get engineers in. They had to look at it. Do we excavate the whole front yard and pull everything back and pour the cement down and all those things that you dream about at night and you hear in your, in your brain and at night, cha-ching, 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 you know, all the money costs of it. And it ended up not being that drastic, but they had to regird the walls. Why? Because the wall was there, and it was good for a while, but it cracked and started going in. And it meant, for the future, you just got to fortify where there was something that was broken and had to be regirded. There are times when churches get planted, and Paul is saying they need assistance. There is something broke, and somebody has to come by and help fortify. And Paul was willing to do that, which teaches me another principle here. He was willing to be an intermediary to help stronger churches help out weaker churches. That is part of missions. Missions is going in, establishing churches. Missions is helping at times struggling churches so that they don't collapse, so they continue to be a witness. Sometimes you need an intermediary. You need somebody who can be able to communicate. Hasn't Micah had that ministry for us? in the last couple years with another church there that we wouldn't know about? Isn't that what some of our missionaries, isn't that Sam Toloyan, um, Sam Toloyan, excuse me, um, Sam Slobodian, okay, I'm thinking of college professor. Sam Slobodian, isn't that a lot of BIM's ministry? Go in where they are struggling and help, let's gird up, let's fortify, let's get that broken wall, let's get it built up. Isn't that some of the ministries that we look at and say, okay, Bruce's ministry that he has in the Ukraine, go in, they're establishing churches, but at times they're going where there's already a church established, but it's weakened because maybe there's no pastor. It's weakened because there's not the deacons. It's weakened because maybe they don't have any ladies there to help 
help soften the rest of the ministry. And so there's that girding up that's helping. That is part of missions. Missions is not ignoring the churches that may be there to the neglect of, of not leaving a witness but helping out at times. Something else that strikes me is Paul's attitude of being a team player in missions. He says in verse 3, When I come, whomsoever you shall approve by your letters, then will I send to bring your liberality or your generosity unto Jerusalem. And if it be meet, I will go also with them. Now I will come unto you that I shall pass through Macedonia. I do pass through, for I do pass through Macedonia that I may uh, be, that I will abide, yea, in winter with you, that you may bring me on my journey, etc., etc. What he's talking about, and he'll re- reaffirm this again, is that Paul is thinking, okay, I need to work with others. I need to be a team player. You as a church, you're going to establish those people that you're going to approve. Those people that you're going to send to go along with me and that they have the liberality. By the way, can I point out that verse 3, Paul highly, highly sensitive to the autonomy or the authority of the church. As the missionary, he's not telling them what to do. Whoever you appoint. Whoever you appoint, you're the greater authority. And I'm going to submit, and I'm going to help, but I want to be a team player with the people that you have. That's a missionary. A missionary at times going in and not lording over the group, not lording over the the different folks that have already established or are being established, but working as a team player, working along with those people. Where some of our missionaries have said, oh, wait, now those are some of the problems we have going into the Muslim community. Irfan was saying that one of the common problems that they have there is they start doing the Bible studies. And all of a sudden they find out that in that Muslim community there is the permissibility to have multiple wives. Ooh, now does that open up a whole new problem? Okay, and so he has to work with them and he says we have to teach them and we have to explain the word of God and we have to deal with them in that culture, in that issue and show from the word of God what we need to do. And not just lord over and dictate but help them to grow and work as partners in ministry to help them to learn what the Bible says and let the spirit of God do the work of the ministry and the convicting and the growing as well. Paul, as he does, there's something here that I think is important that I want to see from our missionaries. Verses 5 and 5 through 7 he says, I'm going to come to you. I'm going to pass through Macedonia. I'm going to, for I, for I plan all this, that I may, will, I may abide with you, winter with you, that then you can help me on my journey. For I will not see you now, by the way, but I trust to tarry if the Lord will. He's making comments that he is saying, I've got a plan. I have some goals. In my missions ministry, here's where we're going. In fact, it involves me coming, spending some time with you, getting what I need with you from you, and then moving on. He has plans. I want to see from our missionaries individuals who have some goals, some plans. If they have no goals, they have no plans, they have no, no purpose of how or plan of how they're going to get something done, chances are they're going to get nothing done. And so we want to see, okay, how are you approaching this? Paul has an approach. Paul is saying, I've got the truth, but how am I going to disseminate this? How am I going to carry on? Something else that strikes me is this is an important character aspect in verse 7. That phrase at the very end, if the Lord permit. He is willing to do what God changes and God, God allows. And he has his plans, he has his goals. But the one thing I've heard from all of our missionaries in the last couple of years, visiting them, talking with them, Skyping with them, doing the emailing with them, is they they say if there's one thing the missionary needs is flexibility because things don't go as you thought they would go. There's always differences, there's changes, even in scheduling. You do realize that most of the world is not like you and me. When it is 6.30, what do we do? We start church. In most cultures, when it's 6.30, 
That doesn't mean anything. You start church when? When they get there. Okay? But you're going to get here at 6.30 because we're Americans. Okay? We, work, we operate by the clock. Well, most of us operate by the clock. Some of you don't. But, but most of us operate by the clock. Okay, it's a different thing. In some cultures, they're more relational, relational than we are. And so what he's saying is, he says, okay, I'm going to learn that in different cultures, things change. I have to be flexible. If you're not flexible as a missionary, do you think they're going to last? Okay, I would be more concerned if one of our missionaries said, well, I, I schedule out every 15-minute block. I, I've counseled people that every 15 minutes, I have my schedule. And every part of my day is scheduled out. Oh, God bless you if you go to a foreign field. Okay? It's not going to be the same as here. It's going to be difficult. So there has to be a flexibility, a willingness to say, if God will, God's timing. And Paul had that. Paul has some purpose. He has some plan. He wants to work with people. And yet at the same time, he's local church-minded where he's saying, you have the authority. I'm, I'm going to be here as a help. I'm going to help out churches that are new. I'm going to help churches that are struggling. Something else that, I stri- that strikes me is verses 8 and 9 passage that sometimes we just grab a phrase of, but he says, I will, if, you know, I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great door and effectual is open unto me, and there are many adversaries. So he's making plans, he's saying, here's where I'm going, but he's saying, you know, while I make these plans and do these things, I'm going to have opposition. I'm going to have opposition that's going to come against me. In fact, it's going to be many adversaries, many difficulties, which means from a mission's point of view, you need to have stick-to-itiveness. Stick-to-itiveness that says, I'm going to stay. It's going to get hard when I don't know the language. I'm going to stay when all of a sudden I not only don't know the language, but I don't have a friend. I'm going to stay when all of a sudden I make a faux pas. I didn't know that this is what they do in this culture. And all of a sudden, oh man, I've made a fool of myself. Stick-to-itiveness. When all of a sudden there's resistance because you're preaching, teaching, sharing, doing Bible studies, you're doing the gospel thing. There needs to be a stick-to-itiveness, a character trait that we want to look for in our missionaries. Can I give you something else? Verse 9. He says, this adversary, these problems, these oppositions, the great and effectual door is open to me. That has to have a spirit of optimism. That says, okay, this is an opportunity, not just an obstacle. But an attitude that says, this is going to be a challenge, but I'm going to take it as an opportunity to even move forward. And so you have these different characteristics shown. Can I carry out and give you a couple more here? He says, okay, and as he closed down, here's his team mind that is really important with his team workers. Now, if Timothy has come, see that you, that he may be with you without fear, for he works the work of the Lord as I also do. Let no man therefore despise him, but conduct him forth in peace that he may come unto me. Now, do understand, Paul knows that there's people in this church who he's going to have to write to the second Corinthians, or actually third Corinthians, he's going to have to write to them because these people are really getting after Paul. They really don't like Paul. They're going to attack him. And so he's saying, now I'm going to send Timothy, who's going to kind of answer my questions, your questions on my behalf for a while. He's coming with some apprehension. He's coming because some of you are going to really want to take off his head. You want to give him a hard time. But he says, don't do that. Don't despise him. Don't despise his youthfulness. He writes about later. But conduct him forth in peace that he may come unto me. For I look for him with the brethren. As touching our brother Apollos. I greatly desire to see him to come unto you with the brethren. But his will was not at all to come at this time. He'll come at a more convenient time. 
And so he basically is saying about his partners, help my partners. I'm supporting of my partners. I want you to be supportive of my partners. It's not a mission, missionary that would say, it's all about me and I want you to only notice me. No, no, it's not about me. It's about us. And most of all, it's about Christ. And so there's a spirit of humility. There's a spirit of care. There's a spirit of endurance and of patience. There's a spirit that, that is wanting to assist and be focused on the ministry that God says is the most important ministry, and that is local church ministry. The most important. That's what he says. I will build my what? My church. Okay, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's church that he's building. And so Paul has that mentality, he has that approach, he has that plan, he has a methodology he's going. But something else strikes me about Paul, and that is this, that Paul has the right message. Now that's all the way through 1 Corinthians where he's dealing with the authority of Christ, where he's dealing with the resurrection, he talks about salvation. But he wraps it up with two verses as he continues in this section. As he's giving his farewells, he says, hey folk, keep this in mind. I'm not ashamed of teaching you the same thing I'm teaching other churches. Watch you, stand fast in the faith, quit you like men, be strong, let all your things be done with charity. Just to dissect those verses... Here's what he's basically giving. Five commands. Four of them are military terms. They are having to do with everybody in the body and put together they summarize Christian living. He's not going to fudge. He's not going to back off. He's not going to be political or be, be so you know, stroking these people that they, that they you know, won't be upset and they'll, they'll give them the funds and they'll help them along. It's not that way. He's going to come very forthright, very forward and say, by the way, here's what you need to do in your Christian life and give them the five commands. If I were to dissect the five commands, here's where I would be. I'd be saying, okay, all of you need to watch. You need to be looking. That's his first command. Watch you. It is all of you be watching. It is the idea of stay awake. It is like the sentry at the, gu at the, the guard. It's like some of you who have gone to Portugal and you've helped out at the camp and Alan has said to you, stay awake at night and watch for any fires. And you have to be watching. You have to be careful. You have to be knowing what's going on. You have to be the sentry at the post and watch out if there's any danger. Well, he's writing, he says, you Christians... You believers in Corinth, you who think you're something more than what you really are, he says, you still need to be watched. You're watching. You need to be looking. You need to be careful. What about? Well, if we went to other passages, we would find a whole variety. But let me remind you that even history teaches us we have to be on guard all the time. Back in World War II, when all of a sudden they were doing the blitzkrieg, and, or the bombing, excuse me, of London, and bringing in the bombers there in 39 and 40, what they would do is they would sound a siren. The siren would blast, and the people would know, hey, bombing started, and that meant get undercover. After the bombing was all over and the German planes would leave, they would sound a second siren. What would the second siren mean to the people? Okay, all clear. Do you realize that in Christianity there is never a second siren? There is never an all clear there is never for us this mi mindset that, oh, okay, now I, I don't have to be careful. I don't have to be cautious. That's not true. In fact, we find in multiple other passages we're supposed to be watching. We're supposed to be always be careful. For we have an adversary who lurks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So watch, he says. Watch, therefore. If you go to Mark, he's saying to Peter, which we talked about this morning, he says, Peter, you got to watch. Satan wants to sift you 
like the wheat. You better watch. Be careful of the temptations. We could go elsewhere and we could talk about watching against the false teachers. And the same word is used, the same command. Be careful. There's false teachers. And where do the false teachers go to? Any and every church. Everyone gets those attacks. Everyone. Did we not hear this week, this month, about how many of our missionaries are being inundated by challenges from false churches, false teaching, charismatic teaching, the gospel of prosperity. They're all of a sudden being inundated with people coming in with different ideas about the deity of Christ. Nothing new. Nothing new. Same thing that happened in the New Testament era. And Paul is writing, says, be careful. Be careful of those people. Revelation 3 is talking about you and I watching, being careful that we don't become apathetic and we don't just go through the motions and all of a sudden church is there, but we've lost our first love. He warns us. He says, be very careful. But if there's one item that we need to be watching for and being ready for and looking if it's coming over the horizon, what is that one event we all look forward to? The return of Jesus Christ. To be ready for it is that's the idea. Be as a century. Be careful. Be ready. Watch for the Lord's, the Lord's return. And while you're doing that, make sure you pray. Be praying, but be faithful. Be serving the Lord. Be ever on your guard. Be doing what is right. I was reminded that last evening. I got in here late and got in from uh, Detroit late last night. I came through the building just to double check, make sure things were ready for this morning. And there was just a few things that, that weren't yet ready for this morning's service. And I thought to myself, hmm, I made the assumption that that would be taken care of. And how many times does Jesus make the assumption that I am doing things before he returns? How many times is do we let things ride? And when Christ comes back, will he say, didn't you know? Didn't I tell you I'd come back and you should have been ready? You should have taken care of this, that, or the other thing? And I'm thinking to myself last night, there are so many times that I have just let things go aside. I've not taken the initiative. I've not taken the, uh, the, to be aggressive in getting out the gospel, in sharing the truth, in talking to people. And so there's those challenges that you and I need to be on guard, always ready, always careful, watching for purity, watching for opportunity to preach, watching in prayer. So he says, watch, which is a, is a clear, clear, predominant message of Christianity. Be ever ready, never letting down your guard, never assuming everything is okay. Number two, all of you stand fast in the faith. That's what he says down in verse 13, the second military command. It basically has this idea, don't move, no retreat, no moving any which way. You stay there, you don't crack, you don't shift. You don't bend in the line, you hold this plot, this spot, and you hold it firmly. You don't run, you don't get away. Now, by the way, when you think about what he's saying to these Corinthians, he is saying to them that it is possible for believers to shift in the faith. These people did. These people who had been taught by the Apostle Paul, they started moving in their faith. They started doubting about the resurrection. That's all of chapter 15. They started shifting in their faith in chapter 2 and 3 about philosophy and education becoming predominant over the Word of God. They started shifting in their faith when it comes to the Word or experience via the gifts. And he has to write to him. He says, you've got to be careful. And Satan is so clever. In 2 Thessalonians, we read about how Satan is holding Paul back from getting to Thessalonica. And as a result, because Paul isn't there, some of the people have shifted in their doctrine. That's something we've got to be careful of. We've got to be careful that we're holding to the truth. We're, we're making sure that based on the truths of the Word of God, we are not fudging. Now, do we make some changes in how we might approach worship? We do. 
We change things. We might change the floor. There's no Bible verse that says you can't have carpet or you have to have wood. We are glad for some changes that we make in the way we worship. Aren't you glad for air conditioning? Well, maybe not tonight. But in about three months, you'll be very glad we have it. Okay? Now, I know some groups say we shouldn't have electricity, and some say we shouldn't be using any electronic devices because the devil is the prince of the air, and he controls the airwaves. Well, that, that, that doesn't mean by using electronic devices or by using air conditioning or changing even this color schemes that we have shifted in truth. Truth is something far more precious than cultural fads or, or items. Well, we are interested in saying, what does the word say about purity? What does the word say about marriage? What does the word say about, about prayer? What does the word say about the Holy Spirit's filling? And not fudge on those doctrines of the word of God. In fact, what happens here is what it teaches and implies. If he's saying to the Corinthians, stand fast upon the faith, he is assuming you know what you're standing upon. You know truth so that you can identify when error comes. You know truth well enough that you know what to stand upon and what can fudge and what doesn't fudge. Where you can make some changes and where you don't make changes. But he's making an assumption. You folk know the word. You folk know what the truth is. And he says, stand fast. Hang on to the word of God. Don't you move. Don't get a crack in your spiritual foundation when it comes to the doctrines of the Word of God. Then he gives them another comment. He says, quit you like men. Okay, now that's what the King James reads. Does anybody have another translation for that third command that might be a little bit more understandable for those of us in 2017? Act like men? That's literally what it is. Literally, let me, let me rephrase that. Here's what it means literally or what it says. Be manly. <laughs> okay, it doesn't mean, okay, get up there and I'm a man. It is more of the idea, act like an adult. In other words, Corinthians, grow up. Now, why would he say that to the Corinthians? Why would he tell them, you need to be, grow up. You people need to get your act together. Wait a minute. Do you remember what he calls them in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1? where he writes unto them, and he says to them, he says, I could not speak unto you as unspiritual, but as to babes. Do you remember what they were doing in chapter 3? They were arguing over which was the best preacher. I am of Paul. I am of Paulus. I am of Peter. I am of Timothy. And they had these petty little arguments going on in the church that he has to stop because they're acting childish in arguing over the silliest, foolish items. He has to write to them in chapter 6, and he's saying, oh, you're all jealous about your own, what, you know, what somebody has done to you, what somebody has not done to you, and vindictive spirits. Just like, you know, if you punch me as a little kid, somebody punches you, what's your attitude? I got to punch them back, but only harder, okay? And he says, stop the silliness, stop the childishness. When he gets into chapter 11, they come together for communion. And what's the problem? Those who have food don't want to share their food with others. It's that old idea, I'm going to keep my sandwiches and nobody else can touch them. It reminds me of Finding Nemo. What do the gull birds always do when they're flying? They're always saying, mine, 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 mine. Yeah, how many times is that tight, same attitude shown in a local church? Mine, 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 my pew, my pew. You know, nobody sit in my pew. You do realize we've had people leave the church because somebody has sat in their pew. So don't, you know, it happens. 
It happens. And he says, come on. Basically, grow up. Get over it. Childishness in chapters 12, 13, and 14, all about speaking in tongues. Why? Because it was a show-off time. It was show and tell in church, and I'm more spiritual than you because I can do tongues and you can't. And he has to rebuke that because it's childish, foolish behavior. And he warns them, he says, you got to stop acting childish. That's quite blunt for the missionary who's asking for help. Who's saying, can you give, can you give me some, some contribution to help out another group? But he's being very forward in his message. An appropriate message. Then he says, be strengthened. That's what it literally reads when it says, be strong. In the original it has, let somebody else strengthen and mature you. You know what that is. You know who that is. It's God. Let God work in you. Let God approve you. Let God give you the trials to build you in your faith. Let God help you to get rid of some of that, that attitude and that, that spirit that is displeasing to you. Let God rub it off. Let God take it off. Let God deal with you and be very pointed with you. Come on. Be strengthened. Don't resist the Spirit of God. Don't, don't say, okay, this is the way I am. I can't change about my temper, my attitude, my, you know, my, personal, my personal wants or desires. It says, grow up and let God keep growing you. Then he concludes with this one, the fifth command. And this is the non-military one where he says, love, 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 love. All of you, all the time, and all you do, be loving. Be gracious. Go out of your way. Sacrifice for others. These are very pointed message. This is a very practical message. This is all based upon you can't do this in yourself because of your sin nature. You need the Lord God to do this work in you. And so he's got a really pointed message to a church, to a group of believers that who are already upset with him to a group of believers that he is trying to get them on board to help him out financially to a group of believers who themselves are kind of immature and yet he's very forward and very pointed in his message. I applaud Paul for being so candid and so forward and not being fearful of teaching the word of God to people who need to hear it. Even though it may not be politically savvy, he is doing what God has called him to do. Preach truth. Pointed truth. And so here we got from Paul, a man who in his character, in his approach, and in his attitude, he wants to be local church-centered. He's got a spirit of humility. He's working together with others. He's looking for opportunities. And and even if there's opposition, he's going to stay there, and he's going to help out weaker churches as well as establish new ones. And while he's doing it, he's got a solid message, a really solid message. But then he adds some more personal comments. The last few verses are more about him personally that I think is really telling, which is so important, and this is where I like to focus our time. As a model missionary, Paul revealed the real needs that he had, the needs that he had, sharing his heart, sharing his hurt, sharing his, being very open. And he's saying, okay, let me, let me just as a wind down, I beseech you, I beg you, brethren, that you submit yourselves unto such and to everyone that helps with us and labors. Whoa, okay. What's he talking about? What's he mean when he says, I beseech you? And then in parentheses, you do know the house of Stephanus, and they're the first fruits of Achaia, that they have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. Submit yourselves to them. What Paul is saying, I think, is this is so telling about Paul. He is making a comment that he has need of others to help him do church work. That Paul is not pompous and is not, is not arrogant 
even though he's in a position that he's an apostle, he is an authority, unusual authority, that he is saying, I need others. I need others to help me in the work. And these others are Stephanus. You know him. He came. He was, he, you meet in his, his facilities, if you would. He's addicted to himself. They submit yourselves to such and to everyone that helps us. These guys, they labored with us. They, they, they came and they, they assist. In fact, he's going to go on and make some more comments about others that help. But he, here's, here's what strikes me. He is complimenting the ministry of others. He is not so mission-minded about his own ministry that he can't see the ministry of other people. He understands the body principle that it takes all parts to build the body. And he is saying, even though I'm an apostle, I need others to help me to do the work of the ministry. And, I, and you need them as well. You need these types of guys that he commends. And he says, you need to follow them. And he says, they're examples to you that you should submit and you should, you should be looking at them. What really strikes me is these, these pungent thoughts that I pull out of here is... Paul showed no sense of jealousy towards others who were ministering to the Corinthians. Again, not mine, mine, mine. You don't touch my, my ministry. No jealousy. He did not hoard the church of Corinth as this is my church and nobody can touch it. Nobody can do anything else. And I'm the only one that can do this. I was talking to a pastor not too long ago that says he is just heartbroken. His church is being split. And it's being split because they had somebody come into the area that moved into their area and started teaching in the ministry. And they took over a class and they started teaching this, this one class. And now that class, the pastor cannot say anything about the class, give no input to it, because the teacher says, it's my class and you have no business to tell anybody what goes on in my class. Wow. Wow. It's, it's, it's my room. It's, it's my stuff. And Paul doesn't have that attitude. Paul is saying, this isn't about me. We're working together. We're a team. And Paul isn't, isn't ripping apart people who don't, don't, may not agree with him. He's just saying, listen, let's work together. I want to respect others. I need those others to continue the work that is being done in your hearts so that you can help me to continue the work in others. And so Paul's very careful, very cautious, and very, and very correct when he says, I need help. I cannot do the work of the ministry myself. Even though I am gifted, even though I'm an apostle, even though I'm filled with the Spirit, even though I speak with tongues more than you all, I can't do it. I need people to help me who labor with me. That's the right attitude. And missionaries need to realize, as well as pastors and deacons and Sunday school teachers, as well as parents and and families, we need each other. We need each other. We need the body. And Paul in his wisdom says, I need the body. I need the body in order to get the work done. God has called me to a great work, but I can't do it myself. And so I'm not going to cut off my nose, fellow Christians, fellow workers, just because I want the applause, just because I want recognition. It's not about me anyway. It's about who? Jesus Christ. So Paul reveals very carefully that he knows he has limitations. But let me take it a step further. Paul reveals not only that he needs others to help him, he needs others 
to help not only in ministry, but his personal needs. Watch what he says. I am glad for the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus. For that which was lacking on your part, they have supplied. For they have, what's verse 18 read to you? For they have what? Refresh my spirit. And yours, by the way. What he does in this section, he names two, actually three people who helped him out personally. We know that they came to him personally. They visited him when, when he's been away from Corinth. They came to him with a financial gift to the church that they have supplied, but it wasn't quite sufficient. So these guys went above and beyond and personally gave out of their own pocket to help him out to meet his needs. That's where you have verse 17. But not only did they help him out financially, they helped him out emotionally. He says here in this text, he says, they have refreshed my spirit. The word refresh means they have given me a break. They have all of a sudden cooled my dry and thirsty spirit when I've been totally exhausted. They have helped me to carry a burden. They have come to my rescue. They have come to my aid. When I felt worn out or I couldn't go any further... They have said, yes, he can. Yes, he can. And they've, they've built me up. They encouraged me enormously. They are the individuals that Paul is saying, even as the greatest of missionaries, I need others' emotional encouragement. Here we go. Here we are. As a church, have we helped out missions financially? We're not trying to be pompous. We're not trying to be proud. Have we given to missions in the last six months? $450,000 at least that we have distributed to missions. So we have done financially a pretty, a pretty yeoman's job. We're not, we're not making it to be proud and boastful. We give God the glory for that opportunity. But helping missions isn't just about giving them money. Paul is saying, I needed more than money. I needed relationship. I needed encouragement. I needed assistance. The obvious truth is that Paul, even though he's the encourager, even though he's the great one, even though he's with a Barnabas who is a great encourager, he says, I need personal contact. I needed personal encouragement. And these guys, they gave it to me. And they'll give it to you as well. And he said, please, 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 recognize these guys commend these guys because they have done such a phenomenal job. They have refreshed my spirit. One thing stands out about to me is these guys who are not the professional ministers, so to speak, they didn't leave the job up to the clergy. They got involved themselves. They labored in the church and they labored to minister to the missionaries. And there is just so much there that we could talk about. For sake of time, let me just wind it down this way. Taking this whole text, let me just say where we should go and what we should do. I think these are the thoughts that we need to keep in mind. We need to make sure our missionaries display the same type of attitude and approach. Whoever we choose to add or to keep on our missions roster, we want to make sure they're preaching this message of pointedness, not just to get support. But they need to preach to us. They need to preach where they're at so they have a clear message of Christian living. They need to have an approach of local church focus where they can get out the word of God and help out even struggling works or build new works or work as a team player. Not lord it over, but to work side by side to build up to help. I think that's a criteria that we look at when we vet missionaries that we recommend. Number two, 
We need to make sure that we, as a stronger church, which we are in many ways, without pompous or arrogance, we would say that as a whole we are probably stronger than many of the churches on the mission field. We have a stronger stability, a stronger core. We have a congregation that's better trained, that's serving fully, that has a unity, that has a spirit of sacrifice that would be commendable in the Word of God. So with that, and that doesn't mean we don't have our issues, but we're saying that if we're a stronger church, we should be willing to help out the weaker churches. I think, I think the thought that has been talked about sometimes, that has been stated, that says, why should we give our money to help out another sister church who needs assistance with being able to provide for their buildings that have been destroyed in storms? who have been destroyed by, by ravaging earthquakes, to say that we have no need to help out even financially weaker churches that are struggling violates biblical principle. Stronger churches should help out weaker churches or struggling works. We have that obligation and we should maintain that intent and not keep our monies just for us just so that we can build nice buildings here. And we can do what we need to. We need to sacrifice to help out others who are struggling and cannot do, even to provide their facilities so they can have a greater impact. And so we should assist. We should have a mentality of helping out other sister churches. This, we need to live out verses 13 and 14 in a comprehensive style. Watch. Be manly. Be an encourager. Let the Spirit of God work. Stand truth. Be loving. There is, there is no reason we get away from, from obeying those commands. We have obligations to do that. Let me take you to another thought. We need to encourage and support. We need to commend those within our church who provide the same type of leadership as Stephanus and, and Fortunatus and Achaicus these guys were commended by Paul and pointed out there is nothing wrong with us commending individuals who provide good leadership. And we should acknowledge that. We should recognize that. We should thank them, the deacons, the assistants. Let them know and appreciate them and love on them. And let them know you appreciate the many, many, many hours of labor and prayer that was done to make this missions conference such a good time and in the days ahead, whatever ministry we get into. This is the area I want to focus on. We need to help out our missionaries and their personal needs. If there is any part of the missions conference that I can encourage you, and I encourage you to give sacrificially, I encourage you to be here and be involved in the missions conference. You responded so wonderfully. You were such a blessing to the missionaries. But this is it. This one next step to really, really live out and to help out missionaries where it is where the rubber meets the road. It's this area of personally getting involved to help them out not just financially, which you've done a great job in, but help them out in another way. We have seen in this missions conference in some of our vetting conversations, one of our men commented, I think it was Bob Davis, commented, he said, whoa. He walked away from one of the meetings and he said, I, the one thing that has stood out in the last few days after meeting with one of the missionary families is how they just said so openly and honestly that they missed contact from the States. They just missed 
so much the support, the encouragement that could have come from their home church or other churches supporting them. But they didn't get any of that. They didn't hear that. We have heard and gone through it in the last couple months where we have talked with the Newtons who said that they need to be connected with a group that will really provide the encouragement. We have heard from the Rudolphs, who he shared some of his heart without going into details, how it was so important to hear, to have some notes of encouragement during some really desperate, trying times. Scott Newton went through a period of time that he got a lot of notes from the States somebody's blasting and saying a bunch of vicious things about him and uh, trying to attack. And as a result, he went through a period of time in the fall that he said was the most discouraging period of time. People were, were writing and saying how they just, you know, some vile, vicious things that were being stated. Hope you never come back to the United States. You know, hope if you try to come back, you don't make it. What does that mean? That's coming from people in churches. We need to just do the opposite. We need to, as a group, say this ministry of adopting a missionary is not a clever idea. It is an essential biblical means of ministering to our missionaries. I hesitate, I tell you, told you this before, I hesitate recommending any additional missionaries to you. Because I fear that we'll create less contact by more missionaries because the numbers of those who have gotten involved with adopt a missionary is not growing. The majority of our families are not involved in it. I do not understand why. I do not understand why this wouldn't be a ministry that everybody would jump on and to say, I will do this. I will adopt. I've had the the comments made. Well, I'm just going to do this to everyone. Well, then if that's the case, when was the last time you wrote those missionaries? Well, I just haven't gotten around to it yet. Because if you don't plan on it, it doesn't get done. Assign yourself. Say, I will get involved with the ministry, so I pray for this one family. Not to the neglect of others, but I will adopt them. And I will focus on them. I will periodically communicate with them. We have opportunity to communicate with our missionaries at just a small drop ahead. You don't know what to say, just write and say, how's your day going? Here's what's happening in my family. They love the contact of just hearing what's in your life. Almost every one of our missionaries to a man says, and woman, said just a little note, just a sentence, just a small paragraph without an expectation that they immediately write you back. Just write, say, I'm praying for you. Means so, so much. Just assign it. Just then, then the only other major part is you, you just make sure we're communicating with. You told me this morning to just bring me up to speed, and I forgot to mention it, that Penny had her surgery. She's back home, got out of the hospital, and she's in a lot of pain, but just yesterday you said that you got a note from Tom that said she's doing better. Thank you for letting me know that, and I'm glad I finally remembered to say something today. That's, the, that's what we need to do. The reason this is so important it is meeting a need that money can't meet, that you can meet. And I know this. I know this without a shadow of a doubt. You folk excel in encouraging those in the ministry. You excel in that. Please, get involved with Adopt-A-Missionary. It would help our missionaries so much. 
It is something that Christ, he deserves you to minister this way. He sacrificed. Giving up 15, 20 minutes a week to communicate is so little. But it really works. I don't know if you'll remember. One of our missionaries in the past came one time and just shared with you how they were going through such a horrible time where they were in Europe. They were so discouraged. They went to the doctor. They got some bad news from the doctor about a health issue. And they were so discouraged. And it was like, maybe we should just go home to the States. And that day, one of the folk in our church sent them a note. And the note was just small that just said, hey, I just want to let you know I'm praying for you. I appreciate you. And I especially appreciate the fact that you have stood, for the, stood where you're at no matter what the obstacles and problems. That missionary and his wife told me, they said, that note was used by God to help them not to give up. They were checking out the airline tickets that day when the note came. It just changed. Changed drastically as what they needed at that moment was a note from one of you. It works. Now the question is, will you work with it? So we have all these expectations of our missionaries. You want to make sure that we vetted them right. We want to make sure they're, they're doing what they're supposed to do. Can we turn the coin over to the other side? Are you willing to do what we are required by the Word of God to do? Not just help them financially, but to pray and encourage them. Adopt a missionary. Serve in that capacity. Father, I thank you for this great, grand, wonderful, glorious group of believers. I am so, so, so privileged to be able to be a part of this church, and more than that, to be able to shepherd here. And I thank you for this opportunity we have to serve. And I pray that you would help many here to take to heart this area that will last for weeks and months ahead. And give us wisdom as far as how we can minister to these families and to be a blessing. And then, Lord, lead and direct, if you tarry, so that next year's missions conference is as wonderful and blessed. Thank you again for your grace, your goodness to us. Give us a good evening and the next few days until we gather again. And thank you for the privilege of being able to share with these people this evening. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.